Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the associate producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre. Today, I'm joined by the incredible co-artistic producer, Ryan Barakovich. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing good, Jill. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Ryan and I have the ultimate pleasure of reviewing and unpacking the show The Family Crow, A Murder Mystery. This is a pucking fuppet co-production presented by Eldridge Theatre happening at the Red Sandcastle Theatre here in Toronto. And it has its run from October 11 to October 23. And it stars the incredible puppeteer himself, Adam Francis Frew. So, Ryan, let's dive in. Let's nosedive in to introductions and what is in your cup and all those things. So, Ryan, what is your ensemble and what are you sipping on today? Okay, well, my ensemble, I am wearing all black. Fitting. To look like a crow. As you pointed out to me when we were riding the streetcar home, I look a bit like a crow. I have dark hair and features and a bit of a beak-like nose. And so, yeah, I'm dressing the part to be in the spirit of the show. I'm also wearing this button that they had at the show, which has our lovely crow puppet on it. Oh, I see you're wearing yours as well. So <laughs> that that is the ensemble, very crow-like. I'm excited to hear about yours in a second. I'm just drinking coffee in my cup of hemlock, the cup cup right here. And there was even a pun in this show about Socrates. And hey, Socrates drank the hemlock. So I feel like this is both on brand for us and on theme for the show. <laughs> Amazing. We love it. Covering all the bases. Yes. So I also am sporting the pin as Ryan modeled just a second ago. It has our protagonist, our protagonist. Hey. Um, with a little. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. Y'all have heard me make tons of puns on reviews and shows that aren't punny. Well, this show was very punny. So. Apologies in advance if you're cringing throughout this whole uh, this But if whole you don't like puns, review. then this is not the show for you because <laughs> yes. we're already getting too deep into the review. Finish your own Right, like right. Okay. <laughs> so that is the pin. My dress. This was kind of like not on purpose. I just got this dress as a hand-me-down for my sister and it has little birds flying like up on the top and up at the bottom, like flying up from the bottom. And then there's like a navy blue patch in the center. I feel like I could unpack the whole dress. I'm like, why isn't there birds everywhere? What does it mean? Anyways, tangent. So I figured I was like, oh, well, this is perfect. I'm going to wear my bird dress to see a bird show. And there was actually an audience member there that was like, oh my goodness, I love your dress. Did you wear that for the show? <laughs> I like unpacked the long story that I just unpacked for you all. Like, oh, it's a hand-me-down, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, I have my little... Every time we hear it. <laughs> I have my little bird dress on. And then I have feather earrings. They're green, but they're feathery. So I thought, you know. And then I am drinking. I also have the cup cup. But I am drinking throat coat. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Throat coat tea. Sorry, sorry. And But throat coat teas have little messages on the little tea tags. So this one is, it's quote, sorry. If you truly love nature, you will find beauty everywhere. And that is a quote by Vincent Van Crow. I mean, Vincent Van Gogh. Sorry. Oh, my goodness. And Anyways. He painted, he, he painted like a whole series of like wheat field with crows. Like, so there you go. Even more appropriate. Again, didn't plan that either. I was like, I need a throat coat. My throat is feeling a bit with allergies and such. So I just grabbed the first 
sachet and it happened to be this quote. So there you go. It's fate. A lot of happy accidents happening here. So enough about me. Let's move into this review. Ryan, do you want to take us on synopsis journey of what did we see? What was the show about? What would folks kind of be getting into if they saw the show? Yeah. So this is, okay, this is just the whole non-spoiler. We will be having a spoiler segment coming up. So just very general. This is a one-man puppet show murder mystery and right off the bat from the title alone the family crow a murder mystery it is made very clear from the beginning this fun little nature fact if people aren't familiar with it that a group of crows is called a murder or a family of crows is called a murder so the title itself is already a pun for a murder of crows family crow (laughs) haha so very natural to do a murder mystery about a crow family um So we have our puppeteer is operating this crow inspector. He's a a detective very much in like the Agatha Christie or Arthur Conan Doyle type mold. His name is Horatio P. Corvus. Again, another crow pun. So many puns in this piece. And, And yeah, so he's just this like funny monocled crow who sits atop the puppeteer's hat and he he tells the story of this murder mystery where one member of this crow family has died and been murdered of course and his name is russell crow and i won't get into all of the puns but all of the members of his crow murder or family have punny crow names and funny personalities and one of them is suspected to be the killer and horatio p corvus is on the case to try to figure out which of them could have done it And in classic murder mystery format, there are more bodies dropped along the way. I won't specify whose, but, you know, if you're familiar with the genre, that should come as no surprise. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a really neat twist that I'm not getting into the surprise ending yet, but a fun subversion of the puppet formula that we often see is instead of it being one puppeteer with a bunch of different puppets playing the multiple characters or even one puppet playing multiple characters, the puppet was our narrator detective and the actual puppeteer himself in his human body played the rest of the characters and did very good like scene work character work where he you know really embodied each of them had very specific placements on the stage to do the all of these roles it was very well done and yeah Mm -hmm. like they they mentioned this in their program note that this is like a deliberate subversion of typical puppet show format but i thought it was clever very well done Agreed. So yeah, standard murder mystery, fun puppet crow protagonist, puns galore. It's a very good time. I will kind of end our plot synopsis there before I get too much into the feathers of it all. Oh, there it is. Don't don't reward that. That wasn't a great pun. (laughs) No, you're doing so well. Yeah, I will just, I think before we get into spoiler zone, I will piggyback off of what you said too. I had such an awesome time at this show. I was smiling behind my mask. Like my cheeks are still sore. Ryan and I are recording this immediately after the show too. So we're coming off of off of the crow vibes right away. We're coming off of our perches. <laughs> Anyways, yes, I also it being in the Red Sand Castle Theater, again, I was a novice to that space ever since recently when we saw The Merchant of Venice and reviewed that a while back on the cup and for those folks who aren't familiar with Red Sand Castle Theater, it is a quite tight intimate space, black box theater that's usually set up for senior Ryan correct but I thought 
this show too, without giving too many spoilers away, the environment that they created with the minimal set and lighting was uh, really magical and kind of added to that campfirey murder mystery vibe. So we can get more into that when we get past yeah. spoiler zone. Like, but I will even say to like comment on that, I don't consider this really a spoiler, but one of the previous shows that we've reviewed from this space, Red Sandcastle, was also by Eldritch Theater, which is mm-hmm. the president company of the space, Two Weird Tales, which also was a puppet piece. And I feel that I, I said this then on that review, and I think I maybe even reiterated some of those points for Merchant of Venice fairly recently, but this space is very conducive to puppet shows because the sight lines aren't always the best. There's not a very like high elevation in the raked auditorium. So having, you know, the audience's eye line focus on something that, you know, isn't like a standard scenic layout of like multiple human bodies and characters really kind of helps to have like, here's the puppet. He's on top of my head. Just look at him and you'll understand mm-hmm. the show. Like it really lends itself the space to creative ways of, directing the audience's eyeline, which I think Eldritch Theatre Company, even though they are only co-producing this show that has toured all over uh, various places, they, I think, are very acutely aware of the fact that puppets do well in this space. Yeah, and just to add to that too, like Ryan and I sat in the front row, but as we've talked about on the show before, Red Sandcastle usually, if it is in the standard proscenium style, only really has three rows. So like you're quite up close and personal, regardless of where you're sitting. And this was really fascinating for this particular piece because you were able to see inside the crow's mouth, basically. So you saw every micro movement that the beak was doing, as well as the intricate work that Adam has to do as the actor and as the crow and as all the crow's family members. Like it was really lovely to see his facial gestures again, like every single moment, because you're so close, right? To see what the actor is doing to enhance vocally or characteristically, right? And because his body was playing the other crows, that was really neat too. It's like, you kind of got to see him, how do you maneuver the puppet? Where's your attention going with the puppet? And then how do you maneuver the characters, right? And that sort of hybrid work up close and personal. And it was, yeah, I was like hypnotized by what was going on. Cool. So should we enter the spoiler zone? Do you think okay. we're ready to go into the I nest, think. the spoiler nest? I think at this point before, you know, before we telling you any more information, we better, yeah, we feather put up the spoiler alert. So here is the spoiler and anything from beyond here will be spoiled. So stop listening and go see this show. If you want to stop here, this is The Family Crow, A Murder Mystery. It is a Pucking Fuppet co-production happening at Red Sandcastle Theatre now until October 23rd. And we are in the spoiler nest. Okay. We're here. We're here. So talk about first Um, (laughs) so like well here's the thing we jill and i were talking about this before we began recording and at my first impulse was like do we even need a spoiler like for this like and then of course i remembered well this is a murder mystery and so there's obviously one very big spoiler i.e who committed who done it yeah now i my first thought was originally well 
even if we have a spoiler zone, is it worth spoiling who indeed had done it? And maybe we will talk about that in a bit, because obviously that, you know, if you are watching past this point, it's presumed that you've either already seen the show or aren't going to get a chance and just want to hear about it. So mm -hmm. we will talk about the end of the murder mystery, but most of like what like technical stuff that we might talk about, about like, you know, the show, the stagecraft, the puppetry itself. Like, I don't even feel like any of these are really spoilers. I'm happy to mm -hmm. get into more of the details post the spoiler banner. But like, yeah, the puppetry yeah. was great. There was interesting use of lamps and sound cues, but like that just feels like general theater criticism. Yeah. So what, but what, I think, what do you want to talk about? I think we could get into each of these things, though. So let's start with, I guess, kind of picking up where I just left us off of Adam's body acting as the machine operating our protagonist, Horatio, and then operating as the the family, the, I guess we can spoiler their, spoil their names yeah, now. So, so we had, we had yeah, Necrophilia was the bum, Miss Necrophilia. Cheryl Crow was the daughter. Mike Crow was the little son, Mike, Michael Crow, and then he nicknamed him Mike Crow. And then what was the dad's was General? General Cameron Crow. Okay, General son, Cameron Crow. Yeah. So yeah, they were all very fun crow puns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't what is I feel like I should know General Cameron I, Crow. I was hoping you knew, like, I feel okay. like you know, too. I've definitely heard that name and apologies to the real Cameron Crowe out there. Like, is he a musician, a film director? It sounds familiar. Yeah. Or is he I an thought. actual soldier? Maybe. I feel like we should know this, we're, Ryan. We're, we're going to Google, we're going to Google this right now. Stop I'm going to do it right um, now. General like, Cameron Crowe. It's funny. So he was the, after Russell Crowe being the first murder victim like General Cameron Crowe was introduced next. So by that point, we already got the vibe of these are all puns. And the name sounded familiar enough that I recognize it as a pun. And obviously, yeah, Necrophilia, Cheryl Crow, Micro are all very punny. <laughs> so I don't know if this is, there's a Cameron Bruce Crowe, who is an American director, producer, screenwriter, and actor, and was a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine. I don't know if that's the Cameron Crowe we're looking at. Anyways, that is a anyway, tangent. Apologies it, that we didn't get this joke, but we got that it was a joke. We got that and it was a joke. It is. Okay, so he embodied all of these family members like in such an archetype archetypal way. Archetypal? And as an archetype. So like his, you know, his body and his voice got small with micro. His Cheryl Crow was like the classic teenage daughter who like slightly doesn't give a shit about anything and it's like oh my gosh <laughs> exactly a crodashian and then you had miss necrophilia who was the mother who was of irish descent and had a little bit of an irish rogue going on and was like the worrywart mother and then the dad being like the tough general like who's in my house who did it blah, blah, blah. so it was just lovely seeing adam kind of ping pong between all of these vastly different gesture and vocal characters as well as like placing Horatio in between all of that. So there were some times where he was going character to character to character, but then the times where you're like character, crow, character, crow, like I was yeah, like, Oh my gosh. He did not skip a beat. Like something yes. that I kind of observed early on is like, this is not a critique by any means, but like the puppetry itself 
isn't the most sophisticated. Like this isn't like I've seen much more impressive puppetry than this, and that's like fine. There's like it's you know very minimal movement. It's really just his mouth and neck that does the movements and everything else. The, the wings a little bit too, but that's only yeah. utilized in a couple scenes. And the first time that the wings were utilized, someone in the audience like gasped, and he said like because I, I thought that was like such a perfect placement yeah. of that. Because he, or like, got us. Who gasped right next no, it wasn't me. me. It wasn't me. No, no, no. But, but uh, like, I was thinking it. Because it, he had his talons in us for yeah. just the right amount of time. Where, like, we weren't going to get lost by any means. But, like, I could sense, like, a little bit. Oh, okay, I need a little something. And then he, like, moved the puppet in a way that we had never seen yeah. before. And I was like, yes. Yeah. He hooked us so, in like, for more. <laughs> hooked us in with his talents. Yeah. yeah, like, so, again, this isn't a slight or a critique by any means, but yeah, it was very, like, simple puppetry, like, simple movements. The mouth, like, moved in good pace with the speech, but it wasn't, like, ventriloquism, like, he, you know, his mouth was moving and that was fine. Like, this is not that kind of show. So, yeah. but what, so, like, while this isn't going to blow you away with its puppetry, it's not Warhorse, it's not even Two Weird Tales, which I thought did a lot more with the puppets itself. But this, like, what was really impressive about this is just the way he characterized all of these, I was going to say people, but they're all crows. Yeah. And yeah, really, like, without a beat, skipped back and forth between them. And yeah, never, never fumbled for a second. And it was just very impressive. And all of their voices and gestures and postures were so well done that you never mm -hmm. had to scratch your head and wonder, wait, who's talking? Which one of them is this? Like, it was all so very clearly articulated. Well, and to mention too, to any of our viewers or listeners, Adam Francis crew was in the original Canadian cast of Avenue Q too. And, and he's been a puppeteer said, even in the program, his mom would argue like even before he was professional, like as a kid, he was just so enthralled with puppets. So, and I think of a show like Avenue Q and it is very different puppetry than seeing like a war horse, right? Where it's like, it really is the charisma and verve that the actors are just bringing to the cloth that's on their hands like you know like we know yeah. it's like you're I know you're focused is such a strange high watermark of yeah yeah yeah, yeah i know too. but it, like it's yeah not even like ronnie burkett level like for yeah. like another canadian reference of like good puppetry but yeah avenue q standard sort mm -hmm. of muppet type mm -hmm. business is very much what we're dealing with here yeah, Hand to God, that's another yeah. good one to reference. But to talk to it too, so just kind of where we're talking about gestures and body and such, I loved Adam's costume. So basically, Adam is donning a black suit, but then has on like a metallic purple vest, like a nice sort of like wedding vest. And then his shoulders are matted with black feathers. And then he has the top hat which acts as the perch for Horatio for most of the show. But then occasionally he takes the bird off the hat, but keeps the hat on, or occasionally takes the hat off with the bird on. Like there's so many levels and dynamics happening. But his base costume was so lovely too, because the actual crow puppet was black base crow, but like with the sort of turquoise and purple sort of like ominous scaly yes Brian is showing a little picture there with his monocle so it was just like a lovely compliment and beautiful thing of like actor standing in as the puppet sort of endowing what like so that there's not too much focus on the actual actor body right it's like he's blending in enough so that we are focused on the puppet 
but then also when he became the other characters, I was like, oh, and you're dressed like a crow. So this just makes sense. Like this, I'm in it. This is a side tangent too, but shout out to TYT Theater just did Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. A good friend of mine, Ona Hillis, she played the pigeon. And again, she was like wearing teal bodysuit and like gold leggings to look like a pigeon operated the pigeon. I just love that. I love when like the actor operator looks exactly like the puppet. It just is like an extension. It's an extra extension that like doesn't have to be there necessarily, but it really does extend the imagination even more so. And then especially pivoting back to this show is when Adam does play all the family members. Hmm. He doesn't have to put on something else, right? Or like micro, like they don't have a punny hat or something. It's just them. Like it's him. Yeah. Um, That's definitely what allows him to switch so seamlessly between the characters if he was constantly changing a costume piece, throwing on a scarf for one of them, putting on a hat for another, that would, it would still probably be very impressive and good and yeah. just show like his stamina and focus of able to switch back and forth. But yeah. it wasn't necessary and we did not like, yeah, we didn't need that to understand who was who and the pace didn't suffer for the extra beat that is required to change to each one. Exactly. Speaking of changing, I'm kind of driving the bus here. Don't let me picture that. That's funny. Another bird fun, Ryan. But the lighting I thought was super cool and innovative. Do you want to unpack that? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so it's funny. He hung a lampshade on the lighting very early on in the show where he talked about how because this was a in character, of course, as Horatio P. Corvus, but he talked about how because this is a show that has toured at various festivals and venues. It has to be a very kind of minimal setup. It can't have a lot of fancy tech, so they may do with what they had. So that he had these five desk lamps that he says were purchased from what well, he said Amazon, right? I didn't make that yep. up. In my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. that he plans on returning them, which Adam, if you're watching this, don't return them because then they just end up in a landfill. That's just bad Amazon packs. <laughs> terrible company. Okay, anyway, like they, they will not go back to the manufacturer or even to like a warehouse or get resold. Amazon's bad. Anyway, so anyway, I hope you keep the lamps, keep touring this show. It's great. So that was my little yeah tangent there. But yeah, he had these five desk lamps at the base of the stage. Each one had like a slightly different colored light bulb. And yeah, at various points in the show, he would, he had like the step pedal in front of him where he would kind of cue each one up and it would sort of shine at a certain part of the stage. And the five lamps corresponded to what I'm thinking is four main family members, but maybe the lamp in the middle didn't have one. That was kind of more Horatio's lamp, even though he sort of... Yeah, um, and I, I don't think all of them had like a particular agency because some of them were used to yeah. like the fridge opening was like one. The going down, a ha- you see a light at the end of a hallway was kind of one. But you're right in saying that definitely like when we were still getting a lot of exposition of like, what family member is what, where are we? He would take the family member back to like the same light. But then once we were in on it, I kind of just, I was like, oh, the lights are just there to kind of guide our agency. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's, it was interesting. Cause like, yeah, at some point, because each family member had like a specific part of the stage that kind of lined up with one of the lamps. Mm-hmm. I think there were specific elements where like the lamps were integrated towards like signaling a certain character kind of like what we just said with the costumes it's not like he's like 
the generals talking. Therefore, I hit this yeah. lamp. Like it wasn't yeah. like that, but I feel like there was some sort of interplay between the characters and the lamps. But you're right. And mm-hmm. then, like the fridge was this perfect example of like he turned on this one kind of more white light to signify the opening <laughs> of a fridge when he found a clue in the fridge. Yeah, and yeah, like so there was a lot of like fun to that. Now I will say that this is a bit of a red herring, I guess, like the kind of <laughs> the, the lampshade that he hung on the sort of cheap production value of this, because there were also lights hanging from the top that were integrated into very specific cues, usually with like gusts of mysterious wind or, or lightning wind, or lightning. Mm-hmm. And I, I, quite a few times when Horatio would say his name and introduce himself, there was this fun sound cue that corresponded. And if I'm remembering yeah. correctly, some of the lights corresponded with that too. Yeah. So like there was a lot more going on technically. Absolutely. Liked to let on, but it was fun that it had this kind of, you know, Brechtian irony about oh, low budget, or I guess more Grotowski and yeah. this, like literal poor theater here. Is yeah. that we can't afford and- a better lighting setup, even though obviously we can, because look at the better lighting setup we have. And literally, like, Horatio is the one telling the audience all of these facts, too. It's not just Adam, like, as a pre-show. It's like, just so you know. No, it's the crow doing it. Like, it's in, part of the game. Of yeah, the show. It's, it's part of it. Yeah. I think also to talk to, so you mentioned about the lights hanging to the little sort of bulb lights that that had a very pathetic fallacy response, I guess. They were also weaved within, like, I just found like the set. So I've said this before too. I love minimal sets because when they're, when the story and the acting is stellar, I love me a minimal. And the story and the acting was stellar with this piece. So that's why I'm like, yes, because this set, like Ryan was saying too, of, Adam touring this everywhere. It had to be scaled down. It had to be minimalist. And a place like Red Sandcastle Theater, obviously you're kind of presented with that anyways. And it was just so subtle. And we're in the thralls of spooky season. And I just loved that it was just the right amount of like Halloween-y energy too. So like the space had like, like almost like a rope as like a semicircle that encased all of these desk lamps. And then Adam and Horatio were in the middle of that, like in barricaded in. And then where these little bulbs were hanging, there was like twine sort of almost looking like tree stumps that kind of sprawled from stage right to stage left and went across. And within them were kind of like purples and like looked kind of foliagey and and it just was it was lovely like it took me right into like a foresty october night you know and so not only was it setting the stage for this mansion that this murder mystery was kind of unfurling in but also reminiscent of what's outside our window right now in in autumn in Toronto, you know, like it it was just, it was really cool. It was like subtle immersive vibes. That's me geeking out about the set. Do you have anything? Yeah. So something I'll add just like practically, like, obviously I think at the moment, you know, Red Saint Castle isn't a space that can really accommodate more than one show at once. That's why the runs tend to be fairly short. And then another one comes in soon after, but something I noticed is a lot of these like twines and ropes that you commented on. They looked like they were just like a sporadic mess, but I'm pretty sure most, if not all of them were hanging on like chicken wire, again, more, more bird mm-hmm. stuff. 
but I imagine those are things that could just be easily removed and taken out. So if you're doing this at a fringe festival where there's another show starting in a half an hour, you don't have to like, oh, okay, mess up the whole twine setup that we have here. You could really just remove the chicken wire. So go. Really kind of, yeah. yeah. It, it looks perfectly like messy and has like these kind of organic, natural, Halloween-y, your nature inspired shapes. But mm-hmm. it's very much controlled. And like, I think that you yeah. know, it's the perfect way of hat tipping towards this idea of ah, this is the kind of show that tours and, you know, has to we have to make do with what it is while still making a lot out of that making do. Absolutely. Yeah. And even too, with like the black background sort of acting as a black cyclorama for us, it really allowed when the tension was ratcheting up and we were getting at a climax of like, oh my gosh, that person's down. Who did it? Whatever. Or when he's kind of stooping down the hallways and the, there was really good shadow puppetry happening in some moments too. Like it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like Adam's like, and now we'll be doing some shadow puppets. It was just the way that the the light was hitting Horatio made him kind of big and grotesque along the backdrop. And I think this is a great segue to... The real big spoiler. So if you didn't believe us before about the spoiler, we're really big spoiler zone. If you haven't seen the show, we're, we're going to... We are cracking the egg open right now. Who's the murderer, Jill? The murderer is Horatio P. Corpus. And what so, does P stand for? <laughs> Philia. Oh. Because... I'm going to spill the tea. Yeah, yeah, do the whole thing. So Miss Necrophilia, the mother of this family of crows, she ends up confessing, or not confessing, but just sharing a story with Horatio. So basically, I guess I'll go back. So basically, Russell Crowe is down at the top of the show. The son, the oldest son. Then the father, the mother, the teenage daughter, and the little boy are with Horatio and they're like, we got to figure out who did it. The next one to go is the dad, General Cameron Crowe. Then the next one to go is Cheryl Crowe, the daughter. So then we're left with the son, Micro, and the mother, Miss Necrophilia. And at this point, Horatio is like, we as the audience, it seems like he's like, grabbing the reins and he's like, I got to figure this out. So he sends Micro out of the room and says, wait by the door while I talk to your mother. And in this conversation, she discloses to him that she had a bird baby before this family. And the baby was taken from her, right? Yeah, so it was, she had this baby out of wedlock and it was a big yes. scandal because she comes from a very wealthy family. back in Dublin. And yeah, yeah, so the baby was put up for adoption and she never found out what became of it as she she knew it was a boy, but refers to it as an it. Yes. Well, Horatio says, it, did you know the gender or did you know what you had? And she was like, oh yes, it was a boy. And she doesn't like like thinking "Mm -hmm." about it. So she like depersonalizes it, makes it an it. He could yes. be in Croatia or uh, Kropenhagen yes. or what was the third one? Costa Rica. Um, Costa Rica, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then we're hearing, you're hearing the story. And I feel like at this moment, some people would be like, yes, but I wasn't there yet, yet. Because then at the end, this is when like stuff started to be like, whoa, because 
that conversation is done and he goes outside and kind of like not outside, but goes outside of the room and goes back down the hall to kind of like take everything in. And then we find out that it's through him like breaking everything down and piecing together that I literally leaned over to Ryan and I was like, oh my gosh, it's him. It's him. He's he's the son. So like I my brain did the thing of like he's the son. And then I was like, oh my God. And he's doing all this. But my brain didn't like fully do that until he was like chasing the little boy away. Micro because Miss Necrophilia dies as well. So sorry. Sorry. I kind of went all over the map there. It's okay. Spoiler um, zone. Go over the map. Yeah. Watching so this so it or she dies. And then he like, fl- like goes on a flying chase with Micro. And then he comes back to the space and he's like, man- kind of has this maniacal energy now. And he's like, it was always my plan to let the little boy go away. Let Micro escape. And he basically like unfurls that it's him. Like he is the murderer. Um, the murder of crows and it's so fascinating because it's like you at the end of it you're like well obviously that kind it kind of makes sense but he has such strong protagonist energy at the beginning protagonist that at the end i was like no you can't be the antagonist like you're great but it was fun yeah it was Anyways, that's so. me just like geeking over me being. I literally was like a five year old child go turning to Ryan, <laughs> like duh, Jill. Like, yeah, it was fun. It was fun sitting next to you while you had your revelation. But so yeah, this was an interesting ending. So here's the thing about murder mysteries, and especially one like this that had only four suspects from the start. That there were these four members of the family. Horatio presented this reasoning. We don't need to get into too much detail about it here, but just he had a very sound reasoning why it couldn't have been like a member of the household staff, that it had to be one of the members of the family. They're the only ones who could have done it. So right off the bat, we're like told, like, don't think about anyone, but these four crows, they are the suspects. One of them did it. And then, so, you know, if you've encountered a lot of murder mysteries in your day, you like you can approach that piece of evidence in one of two ways. You could be like, okay, we are setting the rules. It's going to be one of them. Or it could be like, okay, we're putting too neat a bow on those rules. There's going to be an additional suspect introduced later. Like, and either one of those could have been a correct interpretation. But yeah, you kind of have to wonder, like, is this like a just a classic Scooby-Doo where we only meet like three people and... You know, one of them is going to be it. And it's usually the one who knows the most about the monster in most Scooby-Doo cases. Right. Because they're usually trying to create some sort of like local folklore that scares people away from the pumpkin contest or whatever bullshit (laughs) Scooby-Doo has going on this. Whatever. So, okay, so me watching it, you know, I had the thought initially of like, okay, it might not be one of these four, but I kind of wanted to at least sort of play by its rules at the beginning. Like... If it is these four, you know, you start thinking about, you know, who do we think it is? It's not usually the most obvious person because that's too obvious. Mm -hmm. And it's not usually the least obvious person because that's exactly what you'd think if you play by the rules that it's not the most obvious. So to quote Dwight Schrute in the murder mystery episode of The Office, 
I choose Phyllis's character, Beatrix Beauregard, because she's the one I most medium suspect. So yeah, so I started thinking about who's the one I most medium suspect, because the most obvious one was either Cameron Crowe or Cheryl Crowe. They both seemed kind of suspicious, didn't have mm-hmm. the best relationship with Russell Crowe, didn't have the best relationships with the family. It seems like, okay, they both seem to have, you know, the personality for it and the motive, maybe. Mm-hmm. The one who seemed the least obvious was Little Micro. Now, part because he's just like so innocent and Horatio takes a liking to him right at the beginning. He like takes him under his wing. And, oh. oh, the puns are coming out. And yeah, he very much, he sees like a younger version of himself in there, this inquisitive boy who plays the cello. That was a funny gag in there. And yeah, you know, might grow up to be a detective just like him. So, so, you know, Part of me is thinking like, well, the least obvious person would be Micro, and that's why I feel like it might be a cheat to make it him, because it's assuming that the audience would be blindsided by the revelation that, what? The boy child? But he's so small. So, like, I'm thinking it might be, because at this point, as we're kind of playing it, like, I don't know how sophisticated this murder mystery might be. It could be a very simple, like, ooh, you didn't think it was the kid? Well, it was the kid. Or it was the mom, or yeah. Well, yeah, so, but then I, you know, playing by Dwight's detective logic, I started thinking, who's the one I most medium suspect? And that, in my mind, is like, I think it might be the mom, because, you know, she wasn't, you know, as blustery as, you know, her husband wasn't as like, oh, whatever, as her daughter and not as obviously innocent as her son. Mm-hmm. So like, okay. And then as we start learning more of her shady backstory. I'm like, she had a very like, nervous energy. Yeah. She did. I'm like, this is the one who feels like the most medium suspect. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's kind of where my brain was landing while still thinking, but maybe it could also be micro. Mm-hmm. And then as we start doing the, you know, then there were none thing of, oh, other people dying. They start eliminating the most suspicious ones first. First it's Cameron, and then it's Cheryl. And we are left with the two least suspect suspects, mm-hmm. Micro and Necrophilia. So yeah, like, well, these are pretty much the two I had narrowed it down to. And it, which one is it going to be? Unless there's a new suspect introduced. And then we get the story about the illegitimate child who we know nothing about. And even, see, I think I had a reverse order of the revelation as you, but like even before I realized, aha, that's Horatio, although I did clue into that before the reveal (laughs) at the end, I still kind of thought like, okay, the family of crows just got a little bigger. There is another family member here that is not being considered. I guess we will probably find out that they did it. But then, of course, we get this seemingly compelling evidence that Necrophilia dies and Micro is on the run. And we have the fun chase scene with this, like, leaf blower thing. Yeah. (laughs) Which, like, the one element of audience participation, I will say, if you're somehow watching this past double spoiler Mm -hmm. zone and haven't seen the show yet, if you don't like audience participation, don't sit in the front because one person (laughs) in the front does get called on to. Shout out to Kylie. She was a great leaf blower. Yes, good old old Kylie in our show was the leaf blower (laughs) who managed the chase. So then, okay, so all of the suspects except for Micro are dead and he's instantly like fleeing. 
fly young flea beth we did that last week so yeah so he the young one is fleeing the scene we have a big chase of like oh okay maybe he did it that was would be the one you least suspect and he gets away due to that same reasoning with the microchip that all the crows have is the same reasoning why it had to be someone from the family so it seemed like the case was closed and then we start kind of getting closer and closer to the reveal that it was indeed that illegitimate child and that was Horatio. And he's kind of seeking revenge against the family that he never got to be a part of by taking them out one by one. And because he did indeed have this great respect for a little micro who did nothing wrong, he let him get away. Mm-hmm. And that's what all of that is. And something I really did like in the characterization of because Horatio had this very distinctive voice the whole time. As he's kind of laying out the reveal of this, his voice starts to get a little more Irish. I, I'm terrible accent. Oh, I didn't oh, even didn't, really pick that up. That. Yeah, no, his voice kind of got a bit of that Irish lilt like his mother, which I w- mm-hmm. might have been a bit of a giveaway clue if you had it from the start. But it's right. only once you've kind of already figured out he's him, it's him, as you said, like the five-year-old next Yay. to me, <laughs> that he's like, let it slip that this whole Horatio, the detective, is this kind of like this mask, this persona that he put on to get into the house. But indeed, he really just is this person trying to get revenge. Mm-hmm. Now, sorry, I've been talking for a while. Do you no, that's okay. Do you want to crow in with your <laughs> commentary? So Keep going. I haven't read this one, but there is one Agatha Christie story. I've Somebody get in the comments if you know the name of it, or don't, because then you'll be spoiling the ending of this one if somebody's reading <laughs> yeah. it. But there is one Agatha Christie story that is famous for the fact that the narrator detective that we've been following is the murderer. Right. That is like a huge, like, whoa, mind blown. Everyone's like, didn't see that coming because, you know, we part of the rules of the game of detective fiction is we the audience treat the detective as this audience surrogate who we follow along as they pick up clues and we can trust them because they're at this you know arm's length reach then that we only know as much as they do Mm -hmm. so to find out at the end of a mystery whether it's that agatha christie story or family crow now that oh the detective who we thought we could trust hasn't is like this like a very literal unreliable narrator unreliable area yeah because they've been you know they've known who the murderer is all along because it's them uh Mm -hmm. yeah it's it feels like a cheat but it's not because it just makes you realize that oh what we were following wasn't really a detective story we were following a story about a murderer who was pretending to be a detective to kind of the audience off guard. And that's fun. Mm-hmm. You can only kind of get away with it once. If every Agatha Christie story was that, eventually yeah. the audience would clue in and be like, I don't think I could trust any of these detectives. Poirot, Miss Marple, yeah. screw them all. They're all murderers. Yeah. Um, well, and even I remember in high school, English classes or like my creative studies, like there's at least one short story where it was the whole reason of reading the short story was to like, feel out the vibes of an unreliable narrator. And I remember, I don't remember exactly which one it was, but it was this exact same trope of like, you're reading, you're reading, you're reading, you're figuring stuff out. And then bam, like Hmm. 
something happens where you're like, oh my gosh, it was you the whole time. Like like for me in high school, that was the Great Gatsby, Nick Carraway as like yep. this. Like he obviously we don't end that with finding out, and he killed Gatsby yeah, because yeah, yeah. of course he's not the one who does it. But like is everyone's kind of introduction to the concept of just because the narrator says he's trustworthy doesn't mean we should believe everything he says because. You know, that novel opens with him being like, I'm not prejudiced at all. And then the whole novel is just full of his prejudices. And that's yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Through which we're experiencing the story. Yeah. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say to talk on this too. I, I love the marketing for this show because I think it's another reason why it's such a big payoff at the end is, Ryan, you and I went into this not knowing much about it. Like I remember, I, I remember seeing it on my social medias. I remember like seeing past production photos uh, because especially because Adam's been touring this ever exactly but like the not even that though I'm saying like even through other people because Adam's been touring this show right so I've seen it pop up in more ways than one and because it's a minimalist set and I it was just like oh I'm just coming to see a guy and a puppet. That's literally all I had. I was like, I don't think there's any other cast members in this. So it's just a guy with a crow puppet. Let's see what happens. And then you just kind of sat and got to go on this journey. So I just, I guess like shout out to the marketing. Cause it was like very subtle, but not subtle in a bad way of like, this is not, but just enough to get people in. And then, but not enough to spoil everything, you know, because I hate when, you know, when you watch, we talked about this the other day, like the movie A Star is Born, basically, if you watch the trailer, you've seen the movie, right? So I just props to companies that do a really good job of amazing marketing, but like just enough where it's just a taste. And then you have to go and explore for yourself. Even like looking at the poster banner right now and the pro pamphlet that you showed, it's either... Adam and the crow or just the crow with his little maniacal and monocle maniacal. His maniacal wow. monocle. His maniacal monocle. To call um, it maniacal is a spoiler his, because he is the villain at the end. But I know his, his greedy face. Now that I'm unpacking the banner, looking at it, his like greedy face. That's why I said mani- ma- maniacal. Yeah, he does look um, maniacal, but he also, yeah, he kind of just. But you just say like a a crusty old British detective getting down to business, you know, like. Mm -hmm. And like every single character is a crow, even though he is the only one embodied by a crow puppet. But like, yeah, to say that, oh, he looks evil because he's a crow. Like that's just, you know, species racism that we've kind of foisted upon crows that like they're scary. You know, Dumbo obviously as a movie did not do any favors to (laughs) racializing, you know, crows as a concept. And yeah, they're carrion birds. They feast on dead bodies. They are an omen of death. Uh, Like literally the the third or fourth Song of Ice and Fire book is called A Feast for Crows as the aftermath of the Red Wedding is. And now, obviously, everybody, you know, the vultures and other carrion birds mm-hmm. are coming to, you know, pick up the pieces. So, yeah, yeah, crows get a bad rap. And I like how it, it was funny because Adam, his human body was embodying all these crow characters. It There were times when I actually very briefly forgot that they were all crows until he said a line, usually Horatio as the narrator said a line about, and then necrophilia, you know, flocked 
to her husband's dead body I'm like oh right she's a crow and like i even <laughs> though i'm seeing his like you know human form embody yeah. this character semiotically it reminds me that oh yeah that this is actually these characters are all crows and if you were to do like a live action lion king version of the story with cgi crows that look photorealistic you would actually just have these crow birds yeah. enacting an agatha christie story which is funny like uh, just yeah, as a yeah. visual that we were kind of deprived of here because a literal uh, murder decoding a oh, murder <laughs> yeah. and, and that's kind of something else that i sort of a thought that i had while watching it is like maybe this already exists i'm not familiar enough with these artists and their other work but i feel like obviously this is like a very theatrical event and works very well in theater and especially in intimate small space like red sandcastle but i feel like this, there's a lot of really great potential with this character of horatio p corvus and having like the, this like really great, great puppet very well animated by adam as the puppeteer that i kind of feel like it's a wasted potential to have him just be confined to this one show and like, obviously you could extend that further into just like have more plays about him, but I feel like he would be very conducive to a TV series or even like a YouTube mm -hmm. web series. Like this is just a character I want to see more of. He's just very yeah. dynamic. Now, maybe the fact that he's revealed to be the murderer at the end might recast the way we think about him in future adventures. <laughs> but I would like to see more with this character. I feel like he doesn't need to just be along in live theater where you see him in this very specific context and space like I, I would love to like tune in weekly to a youtube yeah. series like, there, there's the series i watch on youtube called theoretical puppets which is uh, like felt like muppet like jim henson muppet style puppets of like famous mostly postmodern philosophers and it's just like you know having conversations like about their actual puppetry but, but it's like puppets so it's funny or sorry about mm -hmm. their philosophies but it's as puppets. Right. So like something like that, I feel like this character would be, I'm sure there's probably much more puppet content on YouTube that I just don't tune into because it didn't show up in my recommendeds at some point. <laughs> but like, but yeah, I would love to see more of Horatio and in whatever format that takes, it doesn't have to just be when he has a show that can afford this, you know, space every so often. Mm -hmm. I agree. I totally agree. It's like, yeah, because Murdoch Mysteries, Murder, She Wrote, like it would fit right into like almost like a farcical. And I think you could get away with. So this show, The Family Crow is projected for audiences 12 plus, but I think you could get away with almost like Pixarizing the show, right? Where it's like, it's for any age group and like, but like the parents are going to be like, oh, I'm watching a kid's show, but the kids aren't going to get the parent jokes or like yeah. you know i think you can like again talk about that medium suspect suspect like you can medium your yeah. demographic of who could have a lot of fun with a show like yeah. that and like i think if like there is like an afterlife for this character in whatever form that takes i think you could kind of like age down a lot of the jokes obviously they're very puns like the puns mm -hmm. kind of just work in a way that is like appropriate for anyone but maybe some of the content of this show and it's very like specifically murderous themes yeah. and like illegitimate children a lot of that might not be very appropriate yeah. for all ages but i think if you were to make like a youtube series there's no reason why that couldn't be like aged down to like an all audiences type of format sure yeah and, like detective stories in general they they lend themselves to seriality in an interesting mm -hmm. way like there's well, like the concept of the police procedural as this like murderer of the week sort of format of so many tv shows usually produced mm -hmm. by dick wolf dum dum but i i but even like if you go back to like Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle, like you have a character like Sherlock Holmes or Poirot who 
just kept coming back in story after story because they get to be the constant. The murders and the mysteries are always completely different, but we have this one likable, usually charismatic, but not always, mm-hmm. protagonist in the detective who just gets to come back. So much so that when Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes, his the fans were so outraged that like two years later, he had to revive the character because... And then, of course, so many adaptations have played with that idea of, you know, like, of course, the BBC Sherlock and even like the Robert Downey Jr. movies have had their riffs on the idea of Sherlock falling off the waterfall and then still coming back to life because you can't just like let this character be dead. He is the story and his specific manner of finding clues and revealing the information, especially in Poirot's case, is like the big part of the appeal of these stories. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I want to see more Horatio. Adam, if you're watching this, start a YouTube channel, get on TV, like give us- Well, and he's done that over the pandemic. I remember doing some Singular Sensation online shows. That's for anyone listening or watching this, Singular Sensation is like a musical theater sort of, well, it started out as an in-person musical theater open mic night put on by the stunning, amazing Jenny Walls, hosted by her. And then over the pandemic, it went online and it was sprinkled with musical performances and also interviewing artists and asking about, you know, what their work, how their work has transformed or evolved or the pandemic. And I remember being in the same virtual space as Adam when Jenny had interviewed him and he did some puppetry online, like a show online for kids. And it gained a lot of traction, especially in the lockdown days. So I, yeah, and I was fascinated by him then too. And having the privilege of seeing him in person today too. And he actually mentioned at the end of tonight's show that this is the first time he's done a show. He's traveled and performed all over the country and the world. He's been, he mentioned subtly Australia, gosh knows where else. But this is the first time he was able to do one kind of in at home in, in Toronto. So that was really lovely too, to be in the presence of him doing what he loves on the soil that he's from. So yeah, keep at it. It's great. Yeah. Great. I think that probably caps off the stunning piece. Yeah, I, um, there's not a lot to say about this, like while well, we've been talking about it for a while. But like, yeah, I, like this, this show, I guess, just as like a final, this we can put down the spoiler like warning at this point, but just as like a final review appraisal, like this is just a very funny show. It's exactly what you sign up yeah. for. It is a crow puppet murder mystery with more puns than you can count and like it's just it's fun you'll have a good time there's like a pun hour, for every pun there's a Sorry. pun for every pun. like the whole thing is like only an hour long like an it's hour only an hour yeah. dot, mm-hmm. which is like perfect for like fringe festivals and everything but like yeah like it's you know you're not spending a lot of time there like mm-hmm. there was literally a one point in the show where he like makes a fourth wall breaking joke about like we're getting close to the end so the puns are getting weaker <laughs> like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel and like i was perked up and was like Wait, not that I was like perked down before, but like, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, really? We're close to the end. I, like, this has been a breeze. I know. Like, it really just yeah. like, yeah, came and went. And like, yeah, but you know, there's not an ounce of fat on this piece. Like, it's really just efficient at telling its story. It's a compelling mystery. Even if you figure out the ending before we get there, it's still fun to see the journey. And all the characters are really well done and compelling. And if our biggest piece of feedback is we'd like to see more of it, then I don't think there's anything wrong here. Exactly. Absolutely. I stand by everything you just said. So 
Again, this show is The Family Crow, A Murder Mystery. It is a Pucking Fuppet co-production presented by Eldritch Theater happening at the Red Sandcastle right now until October 23rd. 7 o'clock, the doors open. 7.30 p.m. is showtime. And as I mentioned before, it's projected for ages 12 plus. So bring your preteens, make it a family affair, a Halloween outing, treat yourself to some Craig's cookies right down the way. That's what Ryan and I did too after the show. (laughs) Not sponsored, but we love Craig's cookies and we love live theater. And we love once again, an amazing opportunity to uplift artists in our community and support and promote live theater happening in our backyards again, folks. So with that, Again, we'll pop everything that Ryan and I have mentioned link-wise for tickets and such below. At this point, too, I guess, Ryan, do you have any any plugs for us? Yeah, as always, no point following me on social media. But if you, you know, if you like me, I guess you can go see, you know, Three Sisters at Hard House, the Howlin' Company production. I've been working on that as assistant dramaturg. And that previews begin on October 26th. The opening night is on November 2nd. Come check it out if you like Chekhov. How about you, Jill? Any plugs? Plug yourself. Yeah, folks can follow my artist Instagram account at jillian.robinson96. Might be posting a couple musical covers. I know our we have a special Halloween episode coming down the line so that People have asked for some musical covers, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And as usual, if you are listening to this on a podcast platform, go ahead and subscribe. Give us all those star ratings. If you're listening or watching this on YouTube, subscribe, pop any comments down below. We'd love to hear from you and follow Cup of Hemlock Theater on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Woot woot. Stay safe. Halloween. Yes. We've been having a very Halloween-y month here on the Cup. Mm -hmm. Last week, we released our episode, our first episode of Screened Plays, our new sub-series on film adaptations of stage works, where we did The Tragedy of Macbeth, the 2021 film with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. So that's obviously uh, as Halloween-y as Shakespeare tends to get. So good one to release in October. And now... Next week, we do have a very special additional Halloween episode that was already on the docket before we knew we'd be reviewing this, which already is Halloweeny in the theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this has been a very Octobery October here on The Cup, and we hope you tune in next week for the very fun episode that we've already recorded. So, you know, it's coming out. Indeed. So stay safe in this spooky season, but stay healthy, stay happy, and we will catch you all next time. Cheers, everyone.